Podcast Guys takes a long view. Podcast Guys takes a long price. Podcast Guys speaks in spoilers. Podcast Guys is a risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. It's a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian... And a literature scholar... Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... How's Cats Riz? Are hills just full of goblin fire? And a cat just win her first battle? But at what cost? Maybe I'll lose one day, but not today, and not to the likes of you. Fred Emperor, Maleficent, the first. The exiled prince is dead. The equerry is dead. The first wave of cataphracts is eviscerated and perforated. Mm-hmm. The battle is not exactly going well, somehow. Somehow, yeah. In this chapter, Catherine gets back to the command position and tries to salvage a battle where everything seems to have gone right, but these darn mercenaries just won't rout, which is traditionally not the problem with mercenaries, but we've discussed it. Yeah, it's it's a, a battle where I think part of the problem is we're so used to Catherine and her army being so absurdly outnumbered that that's the norm and we're forgetting that this early on Catherine and her army are effective but not the invincible force they are towards the end so the fact that they are massively outnumbered here actually matters uh but yes the the battle everything goes well for cat and juniper and hawkram and ah, the rest of the cast of characters you know them all um everything goes well for them and yet they're constantly just barely hanging on to the momentum of this battle. But what a momentum some of them have. Catherine and the Equerry just had a duel, not to the pain, hashtag Princess Bride reference, but to the death. And Kat refers to this as her first duel to the death with another named. And I think that is a little, I think she's stretching her history a bit with that, but I'll allow it. So, Catherine had a pitched battle with the equerry last chapter. Mm -hmm. We end it as she pulls her sword from her throat. And, sorry, she pulls her sword from her under her chin. Right. Which, though I emphasize, I do want to point out, nothing bad about the writing here or unclear. I'm, I'm just being pedantic because... I have an advanced degree, so I have to be annoying. And also, nobody would listen to us if you weren't, so... It's my brand. But, well, that battle has ended, and Catherine takes a moment to recover, making sure she's not bleeding out, establishing that her armor is a mess, but she's alive, looking at her duel with the named. She thinks about milestones past. She picks up her shields. She straps it on. And then she mentions, around me, the battle still raged. There are 123 words in this chapter, ignoring the epigraph and the title, before the battle that is still being fought comes up. And I think that's great. Catherine is in her little microcosm. Catherine's not the only one in her own microcosm because Hockram is in the masculine version of her own microcosm. But there is a flash of light and Hockram roars triumphantly. I remind you, he's somewhere entirely different on this wing of the battlefield where people are clanging loud pieces of metal together and screaming and dying and explodurating mm-hmm. and horse viscerating. But Hakram roars triumphantly and Catherine hears it, grins and hobbles over to it. And I'm just wondering how big his lungs are. And I think today's start of episode tangent should be a long analysis on the volume of orc lungs. I bet the average orc has a lung capacity about equivalent to one Catherine foundling. That's so true. And that has been your start of episode tangent for the day. As Kat goes to join Hawkroom, she is able to see sort of how this side of the battle is progressing. And she is, uh, you know, 
again impressed with these silver mercenaries. They'd ended up alone in an uphill melee against the finest infantry on Colernia, and they were bleeding badly for it, says Catherine. And they're mercenaries, says mm-hmm. me. And they're still going for it. Yep. She meets up with Hakram, and he does a tired almost salute. His armor's metal is warped. He looks like he's been rolling around in a bed full of charcoal. But he's unwounded, it looks like. And they come together, and they lean against each other, more to stay up than out of affection. And I just gotta say, more to doesn't mean not out of affection. And that's cute. Relatedly, I just gotta say, aww. Relatedly, I just gotta say, I feel sorry for Hakram's back if he's trying to lean on Catherine. Yeah, how does Catherine not get crushed, actually? Why does Catherine, the smallest soldier, not simply get crushed by the others? Really? What a, a question for the ages. Uh, but the, the two the two pals check in with each other. Uh, we get the Hakram asking how the fight with the Equerry went. Stabbed her in the throat. And Hakram approves. Find out how Hakram dealt with uh, this mage who was bad at fighting, but could make himself be burning to the touch. So Hakram, in his infinite William... Uh, that what? Was, I'm not sure... <laughs> Hakram, in his infinite wisdom, choked the man out. His bone hand is blackened and burnt. They don't feel pain, but still, I, I, I have to ask, did Hakram, did he not have a weapon? I understand that the guy was hot, but if you hit him with a sword or something, you don't have to feel the hot guy, you know? Save that for camp. Why was he choking the man? Just, he was bad at fighting. Just hit him. Hit him really hard. You don't have to, you don't have to touch him. You don't understand. Hakram is a weapon. Uh. Hakram says, turns out these bones don't feel pain. Choked the man out. And Catherine writes, I snorted. Killing people. (laughs) And laughing about it. This is grim. But they're like witty, you know? Like it's like clever, like byplay. Like they're just some one-liners back and forth. So it's okay. It's all about the one-liners. Because... Hakram asks if she had a snappy sentence when she stabbed her, the equerry. And Catherine said, helmet reference. Hakram laughs. That's going to stay a classic, you know. I'll bet my good hand there's going to be a song before the month is done. And like, this is a safe bet. But if Hakram keeps wagering his hand, he's going to lose it one of these days. And then where will he be? He'll be useless if he doesn't have at least one real hand. He'd probably be kicked out of the army and the woe. And there's not even, there's not even a woe yet. He'll be kicked out before it forms. Do you think maybe the song takes longer than a month to coalesce, and that's why everything happens to Hakram? His fate is sealed. You you just blew this whole thing wide open. Like, hmm, I don't know, a sharpened stake against a charging horse's belly? Oh, gosh. Sorry, like a crossbow bolt against a really hot, annoying guy's face? Better. Got another one? Like a standard... No, not sand. Like a goblin steel sword against an equerry's bottom of her chin under it. There you go. Yeah, you know, you give me a few chances to make a good comment and I'll figure something out. Just like Juniper. Are you part orc? The silence is telling. So the uh, adjutant is a little worried about the, the other flank, the one that there aren't two named fighting on. Um, and... Catherine is supremely unconcerned because the hellhound is on it. And she says, I'm sure she'll figure something out. And I I absolutely adore Kat's confidence in her subordinates. Obviously, she picks excellent people to be around her. That's one of Kat's biggest strengths. No surprise there. That's no new revelation. But she picks these great people and then fully trusts and expects them to succeed when she's not around. And it's just, it's nice to see. It's just a... It's a nice way to handle the people beneath you, which is to just let them be good at what they're good at. So, admittedly, lots of people are good at lots of things. But you know what everyone's favorite cute little apprentice is good at? Also lots of things. Pretty much everything. But lately, he's been really good at horrific ice abominations that kill everybody and ruin everything for the people they want things ruined for. Hmm. Ruined feels like it would be a pretty good aspect. Someone should get that sometime. Anyway, back in Summerholm, he had his very cool speech that ended with, 
my will is paramount now and forever drown the world in ice. I did not look that up. It lives rent-free in my head. I respect that. And now, in this battle, Catherine glances over to see how the right flank is doing, because it was beginning to buckle until Juniper sent the apprentice over. And, uh, no, it's fine now. The Silver Three's infantry have been stopped because an entire stretch of the slope had been turned into a hellish wasteland of jagged ice that they were failing to pass. And I think it's interesting that Masego seems to have a theme magically. I know that in various settings, various worlds, various game systems, it can be advantageous to spec full pyromancy or full cryomancy or full hieromancy, which he will do later. But in this world, I don't know, is he just feeling chill these days? He, I mean, perhaps he has called on that same contract again because he's got that at hand. Maybe he's just got like 25 of the same contract because he was going through exercises with his fathers one day and it was, all right, I want to see you do this perfectly and you're going to keep making contracts until it's good. And he just has a pile of them to call on. Yeah, fair enough. Hashtag relatable content, am I right? Yeah, I also have a pile of contracts with otherworldly ice beings. You know, Catherine's going to have something of a deal with them herself soon. Not, not these particular beings, but she'll. Uh, the winter is coming. Oh, Trademark. like in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. No, wait. That's not Jolkin, Rolkin, Rolkin, Tolkien. Oh, sorry. Jarton, Rodden, Rodden, Martin. I get those two confused. Yes. And, you know, you don't want to get confused or, you know, lose your head in battle. And that's not a pun about decapitation. It's a segue into a different metaphorical losing your head like the saying usually is for. Yeah, uh, Panak isn't engaged in this battle personally because uh, the Red Rage is not great. Um, but well, of course he's not engaged. I don't think Nilan's proposed yet. Those two are very close. Yes. It's, it's a good relationship for them. You said Nock isn't in the Red Rage. Don't know why Nilan came to mind. Uh-huh. Next chapter. I mean, anyway. Uh, but the way that Kat phrases her you know, assumption that he's not fighting is that he knew better than to risk going into the Red Rage when the fight was this close. And that gives you two options for when he is willing to go into the Red Rage. Either he does it when he's completely desperate and thinks that one more soldier who is, you know, utterly fearless and pumped up with infinite adrenaline might be enough to tip the scales. Or he just does it when they're guaranteed to win a fight and it's just for fun. And I'm not sure which is more likely, but, you know, maybe both. I just like the idea of, well, this fight's in the bag. We've got this handled. Knock, you want to go, you know, foam at the mouth and kill some guys? Just walk right up to five cowering Calwins. Hey, hit me. Come on, hit me. I don't mind. Hit me as hard as you can. Come on, come on, hit me. I like it. A little psychological terror as you mm-hmm. shred the armies. But also, you said that the fight was close. Well, Cat did. I know they were initially vastly outnumbered, and they certainly had a big cavalry disadvantage. I'm not sure which version of that word I said. You said the right one. Okay. But they inside-outed the horses, like in the Pixar film Inside Out, where they stab the horses and make all their guts come out. Which is getting a sequel soon. In interest of keeping this podcast rating, I will not discuss how happy I am to see the father from Inside Out back on the big screen. Oh my. They kill all the horses. They cut the head off the snake and bolt the head off the prince. Cat under the chin, the page. Hakram kills apparently the single priest. The apprentice stopped a flank of the battle. I I just have trouble picturing this fight being close at this point. Well, you gotta remember that the Silver Spears are the bravest, most fearless mercenaries on the planet. Well, what about the slave armies that you can free, but they like being slaves so much? Uh, okay. The second most fearless mercenary army on the on Colonia? Okay. And the least problematic of them. Yeah, definitely that. So, Juniper is running this battle well. And Catherine isn't surprised at that, because Juniper always makes the right choice, always, every time. Mm-hmm. There's a single right choice all the time, and she makes it, so that's how she's so predictable. To quote Catherine, word for word, probably, from the earlier book. Mm-hmm. But she's still curious. She wants to learn. And so she says, Juniper, how do you know they would move to the sides? And Juniper replies, armies, like water, 
take the path of least resistance. Catherine supposes that that was Dread Emperor Tribulus being quoted, and Juniper says, one eye, actually, and suggests Catherine borrow a manuscript of his essays on tactics. First of all, I really like that Grim is just called one eye. Get an epithet that is a not actually singular medical condition, and then make it your own anyway. I mean, how many orcs? For how many orcs could be missing an eye? Really, like two, three tops. Well, you have to understand that orcs aren't like humans; they're weirdos. Mm. I think that's a Riverdale reference. I have never seen it, but I saw a GIF or two. Oh, it's still weird to me that they made the Archie comics into a television thing. Do you think orcs have double rows of eyes, like they do teeth? That would explain so much. Then one eye is actually harder to get to. He's lost three eyes. You know, when all you have are eyes, then having one eye is fewer eyes. Oh, and that explains why half-orc. That's why it was so easy for her to lose one. Oh! Does she have, like, a like three-eye triangle formation, or...? I'm thinking she probably just has two. I don't think that you always just take the average number of body parts between your parents to determine your <laughs> how many you have. Wait, if orcs have two rows of eyes... Uh-huh. And everyone else has two eyes. Catherine should have three. Yes, assuming you take the average number of body parts from each of your ancestry to determine how many you get. Right. Genetics, you get the average. And alloys, you combine the properties of both. And Cat is a an orc-human alloy. Makes sense. So how does that give? How does that affect her language skills? Uh, well, Cat's pretty good at learning languages, apparently. But orcs maybe aren't somehow. Uh, Kat was interested in reading the the manuscript, of course, but she isn't really looking forward to actually taking the time to do so because apparently reading things written by orcs is hard to do because orcs are bad at lower meatsin, just generally speaking, somehow. Uh, Kat says... Orcs writing in Lower Meatsin are always a pain to read. Karsum as a language added suffixes at the end of words to specify genders and numbers, which didn't translate all that well in the common tongue of the Empire. And I, I get it. Like, some languages have gender or, or numbers, and some are based on something. Whatever. That's not the issue here. Languages are different. Fine. What's at issue here is implying that orcs are unable to learn a different language and do it well. People can know multiple languages that have different structures to them and do each one fine. Why Why are orcs bad at this? Also, suffixes at the end of word to specify gender and numbers, not translating well into the common tongue of the empire. Um, she doesn't say what kinds of words are being added to the end of, but for those of us from a Western European language background... That's me. Which is the majority demographic of the locations of the majority of our listenership... Last time I checked. Um, if it's at the end of, say, nouns, y you know a language that does that? Spanish. Uh, potentially, depending on what she means by numbers. But el gato, that O at the end, specifies there's only one, and it's masculine. Los gatos. I'm going to say that again because I don't want people to think I'm bad at Spanish because my emphasis was emphasized mm -hmm. for the thing. But los gatos, O-S... The O is still masculine, and the S says, ah, there's more than one, which in the business we call pluralizationalized. And then if she's talking about verbs, I don't know of a Western European language that genders its verbs, but certainly we specify a lot of information with verb endings, time and number and person, first, second, third person. I don't know what's up in Lore Meetson that makes it so foreign. I know when I've poked at Tagalog, it's got a lot of concepts that are extremely foreign to me, whereas gender and numbers being stuck wherever is very straightforward. But that's so much not an impediment. It, it, yeah. It, if, if she wanted to say that the cats eat, in both English and Spanish, you actually just do the same thing. Los gatos comen. I believe I haven't spoken Spanish in over a decade in any quantity. And in English, the cats eat. Three words, word for word translation, which is super simple translation. But both of them contain all the information, even though like the word the contains less clear information than los. 
but some of the information contained in Los is only grammatical information and not actually meaningful either because the fact that gato is masculine doesn't mean literally anything in any real sense other than it is grammatically masculine and you can play with it in the language but i, I just think that cat has read she's that person who's only seen one anime and thinks that every single time you see a giant creature eat somebody it's just like attack on titan yeah and it's not it's just vor she's <laughs> She's probably she probably read some orcs who hadn't learned to write lower meets in particularly well and assumed that was true across the board because like we've met many orcs in this series and uh, let me check yep if you didn't attach names to them you would not be able to attach a species to those to their what they've said out loud like there's no uh, orcs sometimes use the wrong word because there's no suffix on you know whatever it, orcs talk like people because they are people. They know Lower Meetsen like the rest of the Empire does. And sometimes people who are second language speakers or native language speakers do use the wrong word. And you know what we do? We compensate and negotiate a meaning. And then when you write it down, before it's published, someone else looks at it and says, wait a minute, you forgot to say not here and you made the sentence backwards. Should we fix it? And then you say, oh yes, thank you. So Joseph in, in Conrad, short... <laughs> spoke Russian from birth, and Heart of Darkness, which I don't particularly care for, is one of the most well-regarded texts in the canon. Or, it's a text so well-regarded it's in the canon, perhaps. Because you can just... You, you, you can. Hannah Arendt, very important journalist and arguably philosopher. She had ideas on how she should be presented. She did not grow up speaking English. She wrote for the New York Times. So really, it's just Kat needs to get over whatever this weird division is in her mind that orcs are bad at the language that they're currently speaking. It's like she's currently speaking Laura Meetson with an orc who's doing fine. And by fine, I mean perfectly well. Like, there's no, no issue. I want to point out, until next week, that right now we're assuming Laura Meetson. We don't actually know. This is a praisey institution. It could be in Faithwell across the leadership board. I suppose. We'll... Catherine seems like the only person in the army who'd be advantaged by Lower Meetson, though she's the most important. But also, how does that affect the function? But we'll, yeah, we'll see more uh, next chapter. Maybe they're not speaking Lower Meetson right now. It, the point stands. What also stands firm in the face of trouble is the other side. Juniper spits on the ground and says that whoever's in charge on the other side finally got their heck together. Censoring things is easy. Um, but I, I just have to point out again, whoever's in charge, we knew who was in charge. This mm -hmm. is a very big thing to have had the head of the army cut off potentially up to three times in the one-on-one -on -one combats we know about. And if not in those, who else got got in the charge and the crossbows and the, they should probably be sticking back, but did they? Did a They're down the chain somewhat, and that's got to hurt. Yeah, a fair bit. Uh, but these, you got to remember, these mercenaries love to die. I mean, fight. Dying is just what mercenaries oh, do. They're Gen Z. Oh. They're, they're just ready. Shooting their TikToks. About to get cursed to an attorney of ice, fam. Kat's getting some, some work done uh, because she's ouched, as they say. Um, and... Is that a military term or a medical term? Uh, well, started military, but it's kind of made its way over to the field of medicine. Uh, doctors do not at me. And the... Uh... So you got a doctorate. What are you doing listening to this? <laughs> I disdain you. I got out of grad school early, which makes me better than people with doctorates, I think. Uh, Kat notices that the uh, mage who is coming to work on her knee is, uh, you know, a little awestruck and Cat suppresses a smile because she says, yeah, I've been a little impressive today. And then she gives us the line, for once I'd actually earned the intimidation factor on my own. And it's it's funny because, yeah, so far, has Cat really earned much of a reputation? You know, maybe within the 15th and uh, with uh, in a few specific instances, but for the most part, not really. Like when she hanged everybody? Like when she hanged everybody, exactly. And it's it's so funny because we are... A few short years away from Catherine having 
if not the, then one of the most fearsome reputations on the continent, one of the most intimidating sort of personas on the continent. And right now it's, yeah, I did kill a few soldiers in the mud, so I understand that this person's a little uh, shaken up being around me right now. It's extremely cute. And also, she needs to spend a little more time around her troops, I think. Just, if that's causing such a reaction, a stuttered greeting, she needs to acclimate them to her presence a bit more. She's just a girl, and life is a nightmare. You know? I feel that. Juniper wishes that they'd been assigned siege engines, because a few scorpions aimed at their center would be racking up massive casualties right now. And tragically, given the context, we know that she means the siege engine scorpions, because since they're from Praise, you know, it could just be wasteland scorpion monsters. But Catherine says they don't really need siege because Marchford doesn't have walls. They pulled them down after the conquest. And I think that's a cool little window into Precy priorities post-conquest. Ideally, you don't need walls ever, I guess. Nobody ever gets to your gates. But realistically, if a city's got walls and you have the city, that's a better way to have the city. But Preis tore down all the walls. They're concerned about Callowin Rebellion. They're concerned about Callowin's using it. They're not taking the... They're not playing the long game hoping to use those walls themselves in the next Prosserin invasion, which is clearly the right choice. But let's just see what they were thinking. Also, being that they didn't pull them down during the conquest, so they had to make the choice post-facto. Well, they do say... post-facto lorem oramist. Oh, you speak loramitan? Yeah. Uh, There are no suffixes. There are no affixes at all. There are 15 different words for cattle, based mostly on the relationship you have with them or if you're married uh yeah so the walls are torn down and there's so there's i'm sorry uh, that's for knock okay it done now okay uh you uh the 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 walls are torn down and there's so there's less concern about siege but juniper still wants them and then uh we just sort of get this aside from pickler who's standing nearby just oh by the way i could make you some siege engines if you if you need some artillery just let me know this whole time we've just been hanging out with pickler waiting for the order to build artillery uh not volunteering it until it came up in conversation just sort of awkwardly around uh thinking about artillery but not doing anything about it and i i just love that that the middle of the battlefield the battle is on the razor's edge we're not sure where it's gonna go and pickler drops the yeah i could make you some if you want i guess she's been waiting to drop that the entire time. She just wants permission, but she's waiting until Catherine sees the need. But she's been over here vibrating as she saw where the conversation was going. <laughs> yeah, she was ready. And Catherine's surprised that they have the nails and ropes for that. And the goblin equivocates. Ratface is a man of many talents. And I have to imagine a large wink, if not from Pickler, then at least from E.E. E. with that line. Well, if I can cut one single line out of this to make this seem entirely suggestive. The goblin says, Ratface is a man of many talents. And Catherine says, I smothered a grin. However, the actual intervening line is that none of that was in the lists he gave me. Curses Juniper. Which is what Catherine smothers a grin at. And which strikes me as massively unproductive. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. There there are times, places, ways, and reasons I would understand hiding something from your superior officer. Sure. Sure. I don't know what Robert and his goblins get up to on their scouting missions outside of what they tell, but I expect that I would understand them not reporting it to Juniper. Sure. But the the resources for your army, like, are those ropes and nails for private use? What are you up to? This is, they should know what they have. Does Juniper have a problem? Does she have a rope addiction and she's just slurping it up like spaghetti so Radface has to hide it from her? That would make sense. That's so I don't think noble. that's the case. I, that's so noble of Ratface doing that for Juniper, though. You know, Ratface they, is just the hottest, that noblest. Maybe they have to keep the nails, like, away from orcs in general, because orcs are the kind of people that would, like, win an argument by saying, I eat nails for breakfast, and but they actually mean it. I think orcs win an argument by eating you for breakfast. Wait, orcs eat people? Just because they're big. I'm, it's, it's a reference to how monstrous they seem. You can't actually eat people. Oh, okay. That, that's you got be worried for a minute there, yeah. <laughs> so what's Juniper's hairstyle like? I kind of prefer to think of her as being bald. 
Well, that's not the canon situation. I know. Because Catherine says, at this point, my quartermaster didn't have an actual reason to not own up to the trades he'd made. He was just pulling the orc's pigtails because he could. Juniper has two beautiful pigtails that Radface sometimes grabs on and swings around with. And does Aisha not mind that? Because that feels pretty intimate. Well, she would mind it, except she she was into Radface and... You know, she and Juniper are very close colleagues. Gals who are pals. Uh-huh. Roommates. Tentmates. Bedmates. But is it really so bad to see two beautiful things being beautiful in front of you? Hmm? True. Yeah, that's fair. When did they leave Summer Home? Timologically uh, speaking. A while ago, I guess. But, like, how a while ago? That's a great question. Because the apprentice shows up, and he's slightly out of breath. But instead of wondering about his fitness, Catherine's thought is how he'd managed to lose none of his thickness around the waist while on military rations was beyond me. But campaigning had yet to get him in actual shape. His weight is brought up his weight is brought up enough that I imagine he is relatively chubby. He's got somebody to throw around. Mm-hmm. How quickly are you supposed to lose that on military rations? Especially if you're I'm assuming probably in a privileged position to actually get whatever food you need to maintain your health because you're under some measurements, maybe the most important person in the group, even if you're not the most stationedly powerful. Also, he's got a name. He's not going to change drastically or easily. Exactly. Like, no, I did. I just feel like bodies don't change fast unless something's going really wrong. And then he's got the extra layer of bodies not changing fast. Like and if, also probably the extra yeah. layer of flesh, that means change would be less noticeable. I imagine if you're 120 pounds and you lose 5 pounds, that's a whole lot more noticeable. In fact, I can confirm it from when I had a health crisis a few years back. Then if you're, I don't know, how big, how big is he? More than 120, probably. Seems likely. No, well, he's just a really big 120, you know? Like, if, if Kat had said, you know, how he'd managed to lose none of his thickness around the waist while fully jogging behind the army on foot and not eating for the past three weeks, you could say, yeah, that doesn't make sense. But <laughs> this, is just, this is just, he's eating less, maybe, which is also a huge question mark. For all we know, he didn't eat very much, you know, like... <laughs> Based on uh, his personality, I'm gathering he probably didn't eat unless he was reminded because he was doing abomination. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, there's, there's just, it, it's definitely a weird thing for Kat to dial in on. But then again, Kat weighs probably about seven pounds based on how tall she is. So anybody, oh, anybody, who's, weight. anybody who's got like a human-sized body is going to be weird for her. And to be clear, all people have human-sized bodies. I'm making fun of Kat, not people who have different bodies than I do. That, I can see how that could have come across wrong. I'm not. I'm not here to body shame. I'm here to cat shame, and I will do so constantly for the next 600 weeks or so. But it is actually kind of relevant because let's face it: if he's not in shape, how is he going to be effective as a soldier in her military? Well, he uh, has so far killed twice as many soldiers as Cat, which feels like an underestimation, tbh. Um, but uh cat he had just said you've killed two hey cat killed a bunch of people on her way to fight the equerry remember okay okay that's fair but they didn't that doesn't help my argument true uh but uh musego is saying that uh battles bracing Uh, i think i could like it it's more about shifting the grounds than actually taking lives it's interesting you know the strategic element of of helping the battle be won rather than just doing a flashy kill a bunch of people spell and uh, Kat said, is at first like, what? yeah, he's killed twice as many people as I have, so it's a little jarring. But then she says, uh, you know, raised by calamity, so his scales may be a bit off. And I think that's a very good point because in Ziza's mind, he's not dropping a literal meteor on top of the army or melting everybody's face off or anything. So this is a relatively pacifistic way for him to engage in the battle <laughs> by comparison. I really hope we get to see him a little more unleashed in some later chapter. That's my big wish. Probably won't happen, though. Here's the thing. Even if it's not a huge body count by his reckoning, 
I can't imagine that Catherine's not a little taken with that, considering how much she liked it when Chrysalis did the same. Yeah, uh, he Kat gives an order, and these gives the response so assertive. If you keep that up, I might swoon. And you he know, hasn't ha-ha. been eating enough. It, yeah, haha, funny little making fun. I don't know. There's there's a little goof going on here. It, it's cute. They're they're becoming friends. Uh, cat, uh, my skills of at seduction are second to none, and uh, it's just you know a funny little scene in the middle of a battle that could go either way at this point. But the point here, and we talked about this a little bit before, and it'll come up some more later. But the way that Masego is written early on is very different than how he's written later, um, and this is just like a prime example of that. Like it's not, I, I'm not trying to say that there's uh, a failure in character consistency so much as i think this is it's a serialized format things are going to shift with time as the author gets to know the characters better for instance and i'm wondering here if this is that if it's just ee feeling out the character and seeing where masego is going to land and these are just where he was early before what he becomes later in the series or and this is something I would want to look at as we go forward, because I don't remember, uh, having not read the relevant passages in a while. I wonder if there's a chance that the Zs that we know and understand and remember from later on is a result of in-story changes. For instance, becoming the Hierophant. Does his hyper-focus at the point of becoming the Hierophant rather than the general apprentice, shift his personality towards the kind of person that we remember him as. I, I don't know. I I want to I want to see when this change happens and when this or this shift, this gradual shift. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to say that there's a necessarily a moment where suddenly Ziz is written differently, but um, I don't know. I, I'm looking forward to to keeping an eye on that as we go forward. I was similarly jarred, but I did not consider the personality shift potential. So let's keep an eye out. Speaking of things that happen later in the books, mm. when she tells him to unice the icy bit, or as we say from where I come from, to unthaw the ice, he makes the entire field of ice collapse into a flood of water. And there's a major typo on my version of the webpage here, because it's missing the part where Catherine sees that and starts considering how she might one day do the same. (laughs) But in order to cover up her plotting, she says that she expected it to shatter, and the apprentice explains that he used ambient water for building blocks, and Catherine, in her single moment of understanding how magic actually works in the series, says, right, can't make something out of nothing. It's one of the original laws. And Masego says, sleeping with a practitioner has done wonders for your education. Now, Book six, I was about to say Apprentice, book six, Hierophant, that would just be an honest assessment, guileless and unbarbed. Here, with his behavior, it reads as perhaps a jab, and Catherine, in fact, flips him the finger in response as though it were. So let's keep an eye on that. Yeah, agreed. It, it's definitely It's definitely weird to do a reread and find places where the characters don't behave like you want them to from how they are at the end of it. Obviously, some of that is just people and thus characters change over time. The end of the story is many years after this. Uh, But some of it is very jarring when it's just like how you expect this character to have always been. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to, we'll, we'll have to watch Aziz specifically very closely and constantly, but it's not creepy. We just, you know, it's scholarly. I haven't taken my eyes off yet. Just like Juniper hasn't been able to take her eyes off of the battle, which is correct. This is she's working right now. It's yeah. Uh, she's very focused on the battle. She's in charge of it. That's great. But Cat uh, gives us a little bit of insight into Juniper. Um, you know, she says that she'd always thought of Nock as the most orcish uh, of her officers, just because he loves to fight. Um, but in this moment, Kat sort of realizes that uh, Juniper is absolutely in love with war in a way similar to Nock in scale, just not in how that love manifests itself. Juniper's not using her own sword, 
but she is wielding this army, and that is her expression of her war lust. I'm going to go with war lust. Um, and so we get this little bit of insight about Juniper that she's not just flexing her big brain and that's what she likes and it's not just uh this is her job that she's good at she loves war which is a layer that's easy to forget as juniper takes a bit less of the screen time later on because she's not going on the underdark adventure or fighting the saint of swords you know she's she's her she's the military person and cat is often doing named things so it's it's easy to lose this context in when you when things happen like when Juniper has her big crisis of identity when she fails to uh, complete the campaign the way that Cat wanted her to. There's more to it than just I did a bad job. It's this thing that I love, this thing I'm passionate about. I was unable to succeed at it and do what I was you know have always been able to do. It, it adds a, a layer of tragedy for poor hellhound and uh in that when you if you keep these this previous context in mind remember how they used blunted munitions in their war games uh blunt is definitely one way to refer to slightly less explosive versions but yeah remember what that did to an ogre uh yes remember that ogres are like super tough yes i do remember and also like literally 200 feet tall but even Mm -hmm. well 400 small balls of clay fly through the air. The front of the enemy's line disappears into chunks of metal and gore. These are the only forces on the continent that have explosives. And this just seems like another in a series of strokes that should win the battle. Because if I'm standing somewhere and somebody gets chunked into metal and gore, usually I leave right away. Yeah. It's astounding what's going on here, because not only does this not just instantly win the battle or rout the spears, but rather the concern after this is that the enemy resurges back up the hill too quickly. They get angry at the fact that lines and lines of their comrades in arms just exploded, just misted, and they charge back in. These These mercenaries are unbelievable they are completely fearless and very angry apparently not just that they're coming too quickly so fast that the hellhound has to give an order that the apprentice does it she orders the apprentice to go straight off leash and do the thing however these picked this moment to be really weird about that this plan that had been laid and that he knew what was coming such that do it meant something to him and he just responds I don't take orders from you, Legget. Like, Zs, come on. Just just do the do the magic. Why why is he standing on that right there? It's a it's a weird it's a weird hill to I was gonna say down. It's a weird hill to live on in his glory. Fortunately Kat's right there and actually gives an order that he obeys. No, he does say you could have said please at least. Out of touch. And it's not even Thursday. And then we get Another big spell by um, uh, Zego. Uh, we get his spell work. His, uh, you know, the the similar to the chant, uh, the ritual that he performs to do the ice bridge. We get one here, um, which I'll read in just a moment because it's fun to read these. But importantly, he chants this one in Mthethwa. That's not the normal thing for doing magic, is it? Am I misremembering here? I recall nothing. Do we know what he's spoken when he said, my will is paramount now and forever drown the world in ice? Um, it was in episode 28. No, it wasn't. It wasn't episode 28. No, it was not. I was only searching in book one. That's the problem. It was in episode 41 from the chapter reversal, where he did speak in Mthethwa again. Okay. By borrowed blood, I call on you. Contracts were made, debts incurred. My will is paramount here and forever. Drown the world in ice. That's so good. It's very good. This time... I actually have that tattooed on my forehead. Oh, where are you going to tattoo this one? Going to? Where's this one tattooed? Wouldn't you like to know? Though I hunger 
I am never sated. Through grass and ground I crawl, devouring all I behold. My blood knows the call, my flesh the craving. Nameless idolons, thieves of heaven's grace, grant me flame. So we get Drown the World in Ice, we get this powerful, you know, calling on this contract to <laughs> just ice everything, and then we get this one, which is Give Me Flame. Just just give me fire. I'll I'll handle it from there. Just give me the give me the heat. Uh also, this one's kinda nasty. Through grass and ground I crawl, devouring all I behold. My blood knows the call, my flesh the craving. It's a nasty one. I feel like you could mix this up with some Add a little body horror into this, and you'd have, I think, one of my favorite genres. Just that kind of craving flesh genre. Is this is this back to the fourth thing, or? Oh, full circle. <laughs> yeah. Well, let it not be said that our episodes don't have a running theme, each individual one. We're, you know, we definitely plan for that kind of thing. Also, speaking of full circle, uh, do, you know, we have the sharpers going off and everything, but this chapter is just called Flame. Sharpers aren't flame. they're explosive so he snaps his fingers and his prayer was granted and i don't know if you're allowed to call that kind of thing a prayer yeah Catherine, i know you've already given it up but your soul is not benefited by this description and after all of that horrifying magic do you know what happens two small threads of flame grew out of the sound growing in length and thickness as they coiled up his arm the twin heads of snakes rose behind his back flickering tongues of heat and smoke like that one spirit from horizons of spirit island which is a great introduction to the best board game and masego says i command you and by says i mean he hissed with visible effort and then he sends them out where they go to the spots that were predetermined where they ignite a chain of goblin fire caches buried in the hills. And I gotta ask, is all this theater necessary to do that? Do fuses not exist? Or fireballs from lesser mages? They're just going whole hog on this? Now, they are going whole hog. And it's it's just, you know, it's cooler this way. Come on. But also, goblin fire's but goblin fires, plural apparently. Goblin fire burns, can use anything as fuel, as we'll learn a bit more about next episode slash chapter. Uh, but they explicitly eat magic, so maybe lighting them with a magical flame that is a long snake-like body where it's all connected can help start the fires being a wall rather than a bunch. I, I don't know. Like I, I can see the case where this is a guiding effort as much as an ignition effort. Has anyone ever parodied William Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire with Catherine Foundling? If you know of this, please link it to us. If you don't know of this, please create it and link it to us. Mm-hmm. I'll shout you out. My co-host won't, but I will. I refuse, yeah. I don't I don't really like giving credit to other people. This is my podcast. There's a reason that we don't have any credits, and if we did, I would be the one reading them. <laughs> <laughs> But they ignite a chain of goblin fire caches buried in the hills. And I'm just impressed that they managed to secretly bury these specifically placed goblin fire caches in the hills in preparation for this battle, where it feels like, and I'm just saying feels, time was so short. They had a night because they had plenty of time. A to wait night. For, well, Robert was gone for a while. While he was gone, they yeah. were like, what, would, what could we do to honor his memory in case he doesn't make it back? Goblin fire. And what could we do to rejoice when he gets back? Also goblin fire. When this goes off, there's an instant where 600 men, or to use uh, this chapter's method, of, or the previous chapter's method of counting people, 600 pairs of human feet go up in flame instantly. Uh, How about 3,000 pairs of fingers? 6,000 pairs of fingers and toes. <laughs> 6,000 pairs of fingers and toes, assuming they all have all of their fingers and toes. That's the thing. Not at this point. Horses running into battle have four legs. Pretty much no exceptions. But They have back legs, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but soldiers uh... likely, on average, have fewer than 10 fingers and toes. So I don't know if we can say that. However, I imagine most of the soldiers do have two legs. All of that to say... 
this is pretty horrific, and that's just the initial explosion of the goblin fire, and goblin fire burns, I don't know, forever. Uh, it's a rough one. It's a rough way to do this, but regardless, Kat, unless she's mistaken, has just won her first battle. And her response to that is the final line of the chapter, Gods forgive me. And we can assure you, Catherine, no one ever will. However, we also must seek the forgiveness of gods for the end of the episode. We can go on no longer. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Philosophical Musing. Furious Morning. And Fallen Munching. Huh. I hope that doesn't contradict anything we said about orcs this chapter. Wave in their blood. Like, chew on it. <laughs> Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was On the Road to the 80s by Grand Project. Ice sound effect was Designed Ice Freezing Sequences Dash Zero Two by Gregor Quendel. Spell music was Loneliness of the Winner by Amaranta Music, which I honestly picked because I misread it as Loneliness of the Winter, which wasn't even relevant at that point, so who's the real fool, huh? Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is... The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions? Comments or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art and access a fair number of Patreon-exclusive tangents. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks, as always, to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and liege, all with the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 20, Ashes.